This is Glasgow Crime Stories. We dive into crime of the city's past in short episodes you can listen to anytime, anywhere. The tale of how predator and murderer Angus Sinclair reigned terror on Glasgow is a chilling one. He would lure girls as young as six into tenement closes, then rape and sexually assault them. The mystery attacker would always grab his victims from behind so they would never see his face. Sometimes the fiend would strike twice on the same day. Since his reign of terror began in 1978, he claimed at least ten victims, but more were to follow. Sinclair eventually confessed to 13 charges of rape and indecent assaults against children aged 6 to 14 between 1978 and 1982. He appeared at the High Court in Edinburgh later that year and was given life with the recommendation he serve at least 30 years. Life terms for rape are rare in Scotland. However, Lord Cameron, the trial judge, was certain that he could pass no other sentence. He said, I have considered very carefully whether a limit should be placed on the extent of the penalty, and I have decided there is only one limit, namely, your life. Mr Jackson added, Sinclair could not stop himself and was driven by sexual habits. He asked to be medically castrated in the hope it would get his sentence down. The judge realised what a danger he was to the public with the sentence he handed out. Sinclair admitted the attacks without a hint of remorse and recalled them like run-of-the-mill events. In the following years, advances in forensic science have resulted in justice for Sinclair's other victims and their families. In November 1978, Mary Gallagher, who was just 17, had been found murdered in Springburn on the north side of the city. Her body was found at the foot of a 20-foot wall near a footpath crossing waste ground. She had left home in Endrick Street at 6.45pm one Sunday night to meet two friends and was cutting across the path to get to nearby Avons Park Street, where one of them lived. She never made it. Instead, she was grabbed by Sinclair in a random attack and raped, strangled and stabbed. The crime remained unsolved for 23 years until a cold case review using DNA identified Sinclair as the killer, who then got another life sentence in 2001 at the High Court in Glasgow. Former Detective Chief Inspector Brian Murphy of Strathclyde Police, who led the investigation into the Gallagher case, later said Sinclair had shown no remorse. He added, He's one of the most evil people I've certainly interviewed in my life. There were things going on in his head which clearly I couldn't reach. In October 1977, Helen Scott and Christine Eady, both 17, had been murdered after a night out in the World's End pub in Edinburgh's High Street. Their bodies were later found dumped 16 miles away in East Lothian. They had turned down an invitation to a party from their other female friends and remained in the pub until closing time. On the street outside, they encountered two men who persuaded the girls to go to a party with them. They were never seen alive again, their half-naked bodies turning up six miles apart on a beach and in a field. 
Clothes from both Helen and Christine were missing, as were their handbags. Thirty years later, DNA evidence from the crime scene linked Sinclair to the two victims. In 2007, he appeared at the High Court in Edinburgh on the double murder charge, but the trial collapsed because of a lack of evidence. However, in the following years, new evidence came to light. Forensic samples from the ligatures used to bind and strangle his two victims had been examined using a new DNA profiling technique. A match was made with the DNA profiles of Angus Sinclair and another man, Sinclair's brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton, by now dead. In 2014, Sinclair became the first person in Scotland to be retried for the same crime on new double jeopardy rules. He was found guilty of Helen and Christine's double murder and sentenced to a minimum of 37 years in jail at the High Court in Livingston, the longest term in Scottish legal history. More than 41 years ago, it was the crime that shocked Scotland and rocked the country's legal establishment to the core. The brutal rape of a woman on the streets of Glasgow later judged too traumatised to give evidence against the three attackers in court. The woman, who became known as Carol X, was walking home on October the 31st, 1980, along London Road, Glasgow, towards the Parkhead area of the city where she lived at the time. A dangerous journey at the best of times, but even more so for a woman on her own late at night. Carol had spent the evening drinking in public houses in the Glasgow Cross area, and the mile-long journey on foot to Parkhead was something that she had become accustomed to over the years, particularly as she didn't normally have enough money for a taxi. When Carol reached Davar Street in Barrowfield, she was confronted by three thugs who hit her in the head and knocked her unconscious. She was dragged into a disused metal storage container on a nearby waste ground. Carol was repeatedly raped and then slashed with a cutthroat razor popular with gang members at the time, leaving her needing more than 150 stitches. There was a wealth of evidence against her assailants for the Friday night attack in the shadow of Celtic Park in the city's east end. A fourth youth, who was with them that evening, agreed to give evidence in return for immunity from prosecution. Carol, then 31, had picked out her attackers at a police identity parade and there was substantial forensic evidence. The Crown Office, however, caused public outrage and a media frenzy by dropping the case and the charges. Senior prosecutors had become concerned at Carol's mental fragility in the lead-up to the trial in May 1981. She was then examined by a psychiatrist who feared she could ultimately commit suicide if she faced a court ordeal. There were said to be misgivings about her reliability as a witness because of her alcoholism and accusations she was a prostitute. As a result, the Crown Office decided not to go ahead with the trial. But the mother of three fought for justice and got it less than a year later through a groundbreaking private prosecution. The killer branded truly evil after the cruel murder of a young student nurse Karen Buckley. It was Saturday in Glasgow's busy West End, and nurse Karen Buckley was enjoying a night out with friends. As the evening drew to a close, they headed to the Sanctuary nightclub in Dumbarton Road, 
arriving at 11.45pm. Karen had only been in the city a few months after moving there to study for a master's degree in occupational health at Glasgow Caledonian University. She and her friends were new to the city and were exploring different venues, one of them being the sanctuary. Around 1am, Karen left the club and began talking to a stranger she met in the street. For some reason, they walked to his car in nearby Church Street and drove off together. It was the last time she was seen alive. Suspicion quickly turned onto hulking giant Alexander Pacto, 21, who had been in the same club that night. After the last sighting of Karen, footage showed Pacto's grey Ford Focus driving along Dumbarton Road around 1am, then turning into Kelvin Way and reappearing at the other end 12 minutes later. Detectives would later conclude that she'd been murdered by Pacto in his car during that 12-minute window. In fact, he had repeatedly clubbed her on the head with a large spanner. He then took her body to his flat in Dorchester Avenue after dumping the handbag in Dawsholm Park. A total of 1,900 hours of CCTV footage were reviewed by officers working in the case in a bid to build up a case against him. They showed chilling images of Pacto spending the following Sunday morning driving to various supermarkets and DIY stores in the West End to pick up supplies to cover his tracks, including caustic soda. One shot showed him calmly loading up his basket with the bottles, which he would then use to try to dissolve Karen's body. While his flatmate was out, Pacto carried Karen's beaten body into his bathroom and placed her in the bath. He submerged her body in caustic soda and then tried to clean the flat of any trace of the young student. More than 500 police officers and civilian staff had been involved in the investigation. They poured over more than a 1,000 hours of CCTV footage taken from 50 cameras to build up a damning picture of his guilt. On August that year, Pacto appeared at the High Court in Glasgow and admitted a charge of murdering Karen. As he stood impassively in the dock with his head bowed, Lady Ray told him, Your conduct after the killing succeeded only in adding even more pain and suffering onto the Buckley family. By the time of your first encounter with the police, you must have been aware that her family was anxious for news of her because there had been extensive media coverage seeking information as to her whereabouts, but you kept silent. I question how anyone doing all of what you did over several days can seriously suggest to this court that he did so in a panic. Pacto was given a mandatory life term and told he must serve at least 23 years before he can be considered for parole. Lady Ray said the minimum sentence would have been 25 years but for his guilty plea. The killer, dressed in a grey suit, white shirt and blue tie, showed no emotion and refused to look at the victim's family in the public benches as he was led handcuffed to the cells. Back in 1952, the murder of young Betty Alexander sent shockwaves through Glasgow. Yet, despite every effort, the vicious individual behind the killing was never found. Seventy years ago, 
The murder of a four-year-old girl prompted one of the biggest police investigations Glasgow has ever seen. The killing of Betty Alexander shocked a city that was still recovering from the horrors of the Second World War. Despite thousands of police man-hours over the decades, it has thrown up few, if any, suspects. To this day, not a single person has been charged or stood trial for Betty's murder. The last time little Betty was seen alive was on the afternoon of Tuesday, October the 7th, 1952, having gone out to play with friends. She left her home in Buckloo Street in Garnet Hill, dressed in a brown coat and kilt, but never returned home. Earlier, Betty had helped her grandmother, Isabel Alexander, make the beds in the house, and then went down to a local grocer to help him in his shop. Later, she returned to her grandmother with some flowers before going out to play. Isabel said at the time, She was whistling and singing. That was the last time I saw her. Disused air raid shelters were checked for signs of the missing girl. Parks were searched, and sections of the Fourth and Clyde Canal dragged. But there was still no trace of little Betty. The girl's photograph was posted on every police box and wall of every police station in the city. Beat cops carried them in their notebooks in case they came across Betty during a patrol. Local mothers searched Garnet Hill and the surrounding area at night using torches. One of the mums, a neighbour of the Alexander family, said, Most of these women have been neglecting their homes to help look for Betty. I've spent over 16 hours going over back courts and closes in the district and will go on looking until she's found. But the little girl was closer to her home than the searchers realised. At about 2pm on Friday, October the 10th, Agnes Hunter, a 55-year-old cleaner at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children's Dispensary in West Graham Street, went out to the backyard to clean some carpets. She found little Betty Alexander lying on a small flight of steps leading to the dispensary door. Betty was dead, and had been for some time, having been strangled. She may even have been lying there since she went missing. A distressed Agnes said at the time, It was a terrible sight. I want to forget it as quickly as possible. Detectives reckoned Betty had been killed elsewhere and then taken into the locked yard over the wall or a gate. Jack Alexander, the girl's father, was called to the dispensary and had the grim task of identifying his daughter's battered body. The murder of such a young child, the first child killing in Glasgow for thirty years, had horrified the city. Around 2,000 uniformed officers and 120 detectives were drafted into the murder investigation from across the force. Forensic experts went over the crime scene inch by inch, searching for clues which could lead them to the killer. Eventually, like all such inquiries where there had been no arrest, the investigation was wound down and the officers moved to other duties. Betty still rests in Cadder Cemetery and her death remains a mystery to this day. Despite the best efforts of the police in 1952, they were unable to solve the case. Then there was no DNA or CCTV to consult, no mobile phones or computers to check. The fact that Betty's body was not found for three days was lost time in the investigation. She would be in her mid-seventies now, possibly a grandmother having had a family of her own, 
and looking forward to a peaceful retirement after a rich and fulfilling life. It's also possible that her killer could still be alive, although probably now in their eighties. To this day, it is one of the biggest unsolved murders of the city's past. The savage murder of servant Jess McPherson was one of the most senseless murders that Glasgow had witnessed, but was it also a miscarriage of justice? It is one of the five infamous killings that took place in an area of Glasgow which became known as the Square Mile of Murder. All the victims lived a short walk from the Charing Cross area of the city, where the M8 now passes through the centre of town. In 1857, Madeline Smith was cleared of poisoning her older French lover at her parents' house in Blythewood Square. Eight years later, Dr Edward Pritchard, known as the Human Crocodile, was publicly hanged for killing his wife and her mother at the family home on Sucky Hall Street. Elderly Marion Gilchrist's death in West Princes Street in 1908 was blamed on an immigrant, Oscar Slater. He served 20 years in jail before being cleared on appeal following a fresh review of his case. However, the brutal slaying of housemaid Jess McPherson in July 1862 is possibly the biggest mystery of them all. Jess, 35, worked as a servant for three generations of the Fleming family in a three-storey townhouse in Sandyford Place. The well-built Victorian property is situated where the shopping part of Sucky Hall Street ends. Nowadays, they house offices, restaurants, clinics and bars. But back then, some of the city's most affluent and respected families lived there, including the Flemings. Jess is thought to have been murdered either late on Friday, July the 4th, or early on Saturday, July the 5th. That weekend was one of the warmest of the year, and Glasgow had been bathed in sunshine for days on end. Jess's murder was barbaric in its brutality. She was stabbed to death 40 times with a meat cleaver in her bedroom, where she was later found half-naked in a pool of her own blood. Such was the ferocity of the attack that some of the strokes from the cleaver had cut through the bone at the back of Jess's head. A piece of carpet had been casually thrown over the naked part of her body. There was blood all over the bedroom, lobby and kitchen, including the sink. Some of the victim's clothing and belongings, as well as several items of silverware from the house, had been stolen. The kitchen and bedroom floors had been washed in a bid by the killer to conceal the crime and cover their tracks. Unusually, the face, chest and neck of the victim had also been cleaned. The blood-stained murder weapon was found in a drawer in the kitchen. At first, police suspected that the killer was a thief who had been disturbed by Jess and had then killed her to cover his tracks. However, police thought that a normal housebreaker would have stolen more than was taken. Six silver ladles, a silver fish slice, a silver soup dispenser and a saucepoon were all missing, but the killer had left behind a solid silver stand, which was in itself of great value. Three generations of the family lived in the house. The head of the house was John Fleming, an accountant and landlord in the city. He was also said to rent out several slum properties to poor families. He lived in Sandyford Place with his son, John Jr., and dad, James, known as Old Fleming. His wife was dead. On the weekend of the murder, John Fleming, his sister and son, 
had spent the weekend at their holiday retreat in Dunoon, leaving old Fleming and Jess alone. Jess had her own bedroom in the basement of the spacious house. When John Fleming returned on the Monday, there was no Jess to answer the door, and he asked his elderly dad if he knew where she was. Old Fleming said he hadn't seen her since Friday and thought she'd gone away. Old Fleming was charged with the murder and remanded in custody at a prison in the city. He couldn't explain why Jess had lain there for three days, why he thought she had gone away, and why he hadn't checked her room. The bloodstains on his shirts also pointed to him being the killer. He was alone in the house with Jess all weekend. Who else could it possibly have been? However, the attention of the police detectives would later turn to another Jesse after the footprint discovery. They compared their length by putting a measuring stick against the soles of the dead woman whose body was still in the house. The victim's feet were shorter than the blood-stained footprints left at the murder scene. Though they hadn't been made by Jess McPherson, detectives still thought they were those of a woman. During the investigation, blood-stained clothing belonging to the victim was found dumped in a field in Hamilton, presumably by the killer, adding to the mystery and intrigue. A pawnbroker, who had read of Jess's murder in a newspaper, said he was offered the missing silverware from a woman called Mary MacDonald. That was a name sometimes used by Jessie McLachlan, a former servant at Sandyford Place and best friend of the victim. The pawnbroker had alerted police after spotting the initials JF on the stolen items. McLachlan was handed almost £17 by the pawnbroker, around £900 in today's money. She was arrested and gave a statement to police denying any involvement in the murder. McLachlan served 15 years in Perth prison before being released on parole on October 5, 1877. She emigrated to the United States and married again. She died in Port Huron, Michigan, on New Year's Day in 1899. After the trial, the younger Flemings left Scotland to escape the public attention, the reputation of the family ruined. Many criminologists believe Jessie McLachlan was innocent and her story of walking in an old Fleming while he was murdering Jess McPherson might just have been true. Later, it emerged that the grandfather had a roaring fire on all weekend in the house, even though it was the middle of the summer. One theory is that he was burning any incriminating evidence, including his own blood-stained clothing. After Old Fleming died, he was buried in nearby Anderson Cemetery, which is now gone. In May 1892, there was a bizarre development when a woman in Dundee, Isabel McLennan, made a deathbed confession to the murder. Many people at the time and since believe that Jesse McLachlan was the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Unlike Oscar Slater, her name was never cleared nor was her reputation restored. What possible motive did she have for murdering her best friend and confidant, apart from pawning the family silver? As a lowly housemaid, she may have been worried about the consequences of not going along with old Fleming's plan. To this day, it remains one of the city's biggest and most enduring crime mysteries. 
if Jesse McLachlan and Old Fleming didn't murder Jess McPherson, then who did? This podcast was brought to you by the Glasgow Times. With a digital subscription, you can access our exclusive, insightful and trustworthy local news from just £2 for two months. We are also currently offering 20% off our annual rate with the code GLASGOPOD22. This offers for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code given in this podcast. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rates unless cancelled.